Well, for those who've uh, been along for the journey, uh, you know we started slowly looking at those key uh, passages in the opening chapters of the Bible and spending quite a bit of time there. But we really are hitting fast forward now because, uh, you know, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, then what we just read is about almost two-thirds of the way through. Uh, Last week, we ended with David and Solomon, the height of uh, the monarchy and the glory of the nation of Israel. Uh, We saw all that was good about David and Solomon and their reigns. Uh, But we did also see uh, that they failed in serious ways as well. And that actually led uh, to a fairly quick decline in the nation of Israel. Uh, In fact, to call it the nation of Israel from the time of Solomon onwards is really a misnomer because uh, under Solomon, uh, the nation actually became a divided nation, two nations uh, out of one. The 12 tribes of Israel... Uh, became the ten tribes of uh, Israel, as it was known, or uh, by different names, but in the north, and then uh, the smaller Judah in the south, as uh, the the, uh, nation was divided amongst kings and peoples, uh, and uh, that was the beginning of a very uh, serious decline in those places. Decline in all sorts of regards, decline uh, in their power in the area, Uh, decline in their security nationally, uh, but worst of all, a decline in their spiritual state. Uh, The the leaders of Israel and of Judah, particularly uh, in Israel in the north, uh, really go from bad to worse. As one king comes uh, and goes and another rises up, uh, the refrain throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles uh, is that so-and-so, the new king, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done, uh, and things went from bad to worse. It's a very interesting national history, the Bible, Uh, not what you expect to read. Uh, That is, there's no glorying, glorification of the nation. Uh, In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's, uh, It's just the bare and brutal facts of a nation in decline, and particularly a nation that is turning more and more away from their God. Uh, So the peace of David and Solomon's reign disintegrates. There is civil war uh, and there are attacks from surrounding nations. And across that period, uh, there are a group of people uh, who explain why all this is happening. It's not just because of the actions of the leaders of the nation or the strength of the nations around them uh, that Israel is in decline. Uh, It's the prophets who explain... That, it's, that the leaders in particular, their departure from God is being judged by God. You remember that when God led his people into the promised land, he explained that he was giving it to them that they might live there in peace and safety under his good rule and as a result, live under his blessing. But also that if they failed to live under his good rule, if they failed to drive out the nations, if they failed uh, to... Uh, treat God as God alone, then they would be ensnared by the nations and their gods around them and they would turn away from God and God would judge them for it. That rather than blessing uh, in the nation, they would uh, be under God's curse in the nation. And that's exactly what happened. And the prophets who, uh, if you look at the contents page of your Bible, they're sort of the last or 16 of the last 17 books of your Old Testament, 
they, so in terms of a timeline, you could have sort of the, the history books of Kings and Chronicles uh, listed here, and then as a parallel list, uh, the lists of the prophets. So even though they're in a particular order in your Bible, uh, the prophets are actually going along at the same time as the history. Uh, pretty much all the time, uh, God had a prophet whose job it was to speak to the king in particular and through him to the people. Uh, so that's uh, what we're, where we're up to this morning. We're in the prophets and we're looking at one prophet in particular, the prophet of Hosea, but we'll also look more broadly at the role of the prophets as well. Uh, how about we pray now, though, uh, to get our heads and hearts into this part of God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are with us, that you do speak, that uh, in the past you've spoken through the prophets and many times and in various ways, but in these last days, uh, which we find ourselves in as well, you speak to us through your Son, and we trust that your word in every part points us to him. So we ask that you will help us to see him and understand him and love and submit to him uh, through our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if I had the chance to uh, sit down and have a good yarn with you about your life and ask you this question, what's the worst job that you've ever had? Uh, I wonder what you'd tell me. Uh, thanks for asking. I'll tell you what mine was. Uh, it was only—it was a very brief job. I actually only had this job for two days, uh, which wasn't what made it bad. I didn't get sacked so much. It was only ever going to be a two-day two -day job, or at least that's what I uh, understood going into it. It was um, uh, summer, and uh, I had just given up my dreams of becoming a professional golfer. So. When I was a young man, that's what I wanted to do with my life. I thought I was going to be a professional golfer, and I trained really hard for that. And then eventually I realised it, uh, it was going to be much harder to achieve than I had once thought. And I also was injured, and I thought, this is just it's not going to happen. So I applied to university, and, uh, and I was just waiting for the um, offers to come out for university. So I was at a bit of a loose end, and there was a fella in the church uh, who owned a removalist business, and he said, uh, you know, you're not doing anything, would you like a couple of days' work? And I said, oh, sure, I'm up for that. And uh, so off I went uh, to this job, and the job was to dismantle uh, an architect's office, an open, big open plan architect's office, and uh, put all the furniture into the truck and uh, deliver it elsewhere, which doesn't sound all that hard, right? Uh, except that all the you know, massive desks and furniture and whatever were really heavy and we had to get it down staircases uh, into the truck. And to be honest, I was by the end of the first day, I was just stuffed, absolutely stuffed. I've never done such a hard day's work in my life. I was exhausted. And I couldn't sleep that night. I wasn't, um, something was happening that night that meant that I couldn't go to bed as soon as I got home either because at midnight that night was when the uh, university offers were coming out. And so uh, this, they, this is what they did back in the day. They published the university offers in the newspaper uh, and the, the issue came out at midnight. So with my friends, I went down to the petrol station at midnight and grabbed my copy and scanned through all the lists and my name wasn't there anywhere. You know, like I'd put my name down for, I don't know, half a dozen different courses and I was offered nothing. I didn't know why, and, and the thought dawned on me, 
I'm going to be a removalist forever. <laughs> now, apologies to any removalists here. or uh, The problem wasn't so much the job, but I just didn't think I was suited after one day's work. And the next day, when I went and did the second day of that job, it was the longest day of my life. Because it wasn't just doing the job, it was the thought, oh dear, this is me. This is forever. Anyway, it turned out that wasn't the case and there was some sort of administrative issue that had meant that, anyway, yada, 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 and eventually uh, I was offered a place at university and I didn't go down that path. But boy, that was, for me, that was the worst job ever. Not so, much, not so much because of the job itself, but when I, thought, uh, when I thought it was only for a couple of days, but when I thought it was for a lifetime... I just couldn't fathom it. Now, the prophets, I reckon they had an even tougher job than being a removalist, or whatever your version of that story might be. The prophets of Israel had it really tough. You see, their job wasn't fundamentally to tell the future. I think sometimes we think of prophecy as sort of like, you know, fortune-telling, Uh, And even though there was an element of that in the job of the prophets, really their job was to act as the mouthpiece of God. So for God to speak to the nation, he chose a person and spoke through that person uh, to the nation. And so, of course, it was a really important job. And you might think, well, how could the job that held such prestige be a really bad job? Well, it's because so often the message that God wanted to deliver to his people was not one that they wanted to hear. You see, the prophet's job was to be a herald of the covenant. Remember the covenant that God entered into with his people, that they would be his people and he would be their God and they would live under his rule and under his blessing. That very serious ceremony that we saw where the animals were cut in half and uh, God himself walked up and down between the pieces of the animals to indicate uh, his commitment to the covenant. Well, the prophet's job was to remind the people of that covenant that they had entered into and to remind them of the blessings or curses that would flow depending on uh, how they responded uh, to God. And so often the message that they had to deliver was very, very unpopular. It was received as bad news. And fair enough, it was bad news for the people, Uh, bad news that they had uh, deserved because of the way they were turning away from God. I think the motto of the prophets would have been something like, don't shoot the messenger. Um, But occasionally, occasionally there was a prophet who was called not only to speak God's word, but actually to act it out, to to live out God's message to the people. And I, I don't mean like a game of charades. You know, it wasn't kind of... You know, can you guess? Three words, here's the message from God. Uh, They actually had to live it out. Now, you might know a couple of these guys. Ezekiel, he was one of them. Uh, On one occasion, Ezekiel had to make a little model of the city of Jerusalem uh, and uh, set it up and and sort of uh, arrange a siege around it. And then he had to lie down on his side for over a year, tied up, lying down on his side and cooking his food over poo. 
bizarre, right? But a sign of uh, what was coming for Israel, a siege against Jerusalem, and of God's judgment and of the nature of the slavery that they would uh, find themselves in, symbolising the siege of Judah. There's more to what Ezekiel had to do. Uh, You can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 4 and chapter 5. But we're not focusing on him this morning. We're focusing on another prophet who had to uh, live out God's message. And I think his job was even worse, far worse, in fact, than what Ezekiel had to do. Because it wasn't only for a year, uh, it was pretty much for a lifetime. And what Hosea had to do, you can read about in the opening chapters of, his, uh, of the book that bears his name. Uh, in chapter 1, we read that when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, this is verse 2, the Lord said to him, "'Go and marry a promiscuous woman.'" Go and marry a promiscuous woman. Just any promiscuous woman, Hosea. Just go and find one, you know. Go and find the one with the worst reputation and I want you to marry her and have children with her. Wow. What a call from God. Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her and so... Hosea obediently did as he was asked. He went and married a lady by the name of Gomer, who obviously did have a reputation in uh, Israel. And by her, he had children, three children, to be precise, a son, a daughter, and a son. And those children had to bear the names that God would give them as a sign to Israel of his judgment on her. Uh, The first child was given the name Jezreel, which was uh, a place famous for bloodshed in the nation of Israel. might be a little bit like you calling your child Gallipoli or something like that. Uh, The second child was to be called Lo-Ruhamah, which meant not loved. What a sad name to grow up with. And the third child was to be called Lo-Am-I, which meant not my people. Not my people. And all of this was to symbolise for the nation how serious God was taking their rejection of him. And it would have been quite powerful, wouldn't it? For Israel to have this figurehead, this prophet, going through this experience as an example or an illustration of how God felt about their treatment of him that just as Goma was by nature promiscuous, just as she gave her love easily to any other man, so Israel did to God. And when she strayed, Goma, uh, sorry, Hosea was told to go to her again. And so we had that reading of chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Imagine how difficult that would have been for Hosea. And not only that, but love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. He's not just called to marry her, but he's called to love her, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, which I gather were part of the worship uh, of the nations around them. And so he goes and he finds his woman with, in the house of another man, I imagine, and to him... He pays the dowry again. He 
He pays the bride price for his own wife to this man. What a shameful thing for him to have to do, and yet he did it, and he brought her back. Why do you think God asked Hosea to do all these things? Well, I've already mentioned it, and it's fairly obvious, really. It's a flesh and blood demonstration of what is going on in the relationship between Israel and God. It's a demonstration of Israel's spiritual adultery, her unfaithfulness to her covenant relationship. Remember, the covenant relationship was an exclusive one. Uh, the heading of the, uh, of the covenant, really, was the Ten Commandments, and the, the first of those commandments, remember, was you are to have no other gods but me. Think about the promises that are made in a marriage, forsaking all others. See, the relationship between God and Israel was to be exactly like that of a marriage, an exclusive covenant relationship. And so when God calls himself a jealous God... We have to understand that it's in the context of that covenant relationship. He is jealous, he is rightly jealous, just as a husband or wife ought to be rightly jealous of their spouse because they have agreed to an exclusive relationship. They protect that relationship at all costs. But Israel have turned from that relationship at every opportunity. And that's what Hosea's marriage to Gomer and uh, his family life is meant to indicate to Israel. So what exactly is it that Israel have done? What does their spiritual adultery entail? Well, there's a summary of it in chapter 4, verse 1. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. And this unfaithfulness to God uh, occurs in their religious life, it occurs in their national life, and it occurs in the personal lives of the people. So in their religious life, for example, in chapter 4, verse 12, we read, My people consult a wooden idol, and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They go and worship other idols, just as God said they would if they didn't drive out the nations, they would end up bringing those idols in alongside their worship of God and eventually that those idols would push out God altogether. So there was idolatry. Uh, in their national life, their unfaithfulness to God looked like making treaties with the nations around them. So in chapter 5, verse 13, when Ephraim, that's Israel, saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king, that's the king of Assyria, for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. So when Israel, the leaders saw their power waning, rather than turning to God, they turned to the nations around them, looking to bolster their strength through those treaties. So again, in their national life and their, their uh, uh, foreign policy, if you like, they turned away from God and turned to look for help from the nations around them. And, uh, and then also in their personal lives, 
this spiritual adultery uh, was expressed also in actual physical adultery as well. So in chapter 4, verse 2, we read, There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And then over in verse 13, Therefore your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. That was the state of the nation of Israel at the time that Hosea was prophesying. It's pretty dark, isn't it? And it's not a misrepresentation. It's not an exaggeration. It's what happened when this nation turned away from God. And you might think to yourselves, I'm glad I, glad I wasn't part of that. I'm glad I'm not living in those times. I'm glad I'm more faithful than that. And yet, I wonder if we too... In fact, I don't wonder. We've already confessed it this morning. In our prayer of confession, we confessed unfaithfulness to God. We confessed that we haven't loved God and God alone. And this image, this very powerful enacted image of adultery, I think really helps us understand why it's so serious that we don't love God and God alone. Can you imagine your spouse, if you're married, can you imagine them bringing home another partner into your home and seeing you at the table and just saying, hi, darling, this is Bronwyn. We're just going upstairs to have sex. Is that all right with you? <laughs> Not likely. Right? But, but that's pretty much what Israel was expecting. And it's pretty much what's going on when we compromise our love for God by loving other things instead of God, by putting our hope in other things other than God. And I find it really helpful in uh, James chapter 4 where uh, he says this. So this is you know, a New Testament letter and James says this to his, to his readers. He says, don't you know, uh, you adulterous people, he says to them, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hatred against God? Friendship with the world. doesn't sound all that serious, does it? But God says, that's exactly how you commit adultery with me. You make friends with the world. That is the world apart from God, the world that doesn't acknowledge God, the world that stands against God, And I think we are very prone to making those kinds of compromises. You know, it was Jesus who said you can't serve two masters. It doesn't work. You'll end up giving up on one of them. I guess we could say you can't have two mistresses if we're going to use this image of adultery. You'll end up giving up on one of them. If you give your love to the world, if you pursue all the kinds of things that everybody else, all all those who don't know God pursue, you'll end up giving up on God. And you will certainly compromise your love for God. And so I think that actually this message 
given by Hosea is very, very relevant for us today as well. And we need to hear the serious consequences that flow from jeopardising our relationship with God, compromising our relationship with God. The message of the prophets is, by and large, a message of judgment. If you read prophet after prophet, the message is, unless you turn, unless you turn back to me and away from your idolatry, judgment will fall. And the further on you go in history, the unless bit just drops off because they're not turning and, God, and the message, messengers just say, judgment is coming. It's just around the corner. But every prophet also, as well as that judgment, that deserved judgment on this unfaithful people, the message also has hope mixed in. In every prophet... Surprisingly, there is also a message of hope, hope beyond judgment. So, for example, in Hosea, Hosea clearly says judgment is coming. God is going to deprive them of his love. He's going to deprive them of his blessing. He's even going to deprive them of his forgiveness for a time. But after that, after that, God is going to restore them. There is hope beyond the judgment. And so Hosea uses the language of Israel's past, language that we've heard in the promises that have been made, promises to Abraham, promises to David. If you have a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 10, after saying, uh, after giving instructions to Hosea for how he is to take Gomer as his wife and uh, name the children, he says, yet... Verse 10, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. They will. God is going to keep his promises, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. God is going to restore them as one people. And they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land. So there is hope foretold there. Um, Again, we saw there the language of the king, the promise of a king, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will have one leader. And then over in chapter 3, verse 5, afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David, their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So we hear that language of the past, the promises to Abram and David to provide hope beyond the judgment. But Hosea also and the other prophets also use familiar language to promise that God is going to do something new as well. It's not just going to be the past repeated. God is going to do something new. And I think this is the most powerful uh, thing about the prophets and the role that they play in the Bible the way that all the expectation, the hope that is built up in them finds its fulfilment in Jesus. Because here's the thing about the prophets that we've got to remember, that we've got to understand. They are undisputedly written hundreds of years before Jesus was born and lived and died and rose again. There is no doubt about that. There is no archaeologist or historian in the world who believes that these documents did not precede Jesus. 
Now, you have to keep that in mind when you read passages like this. For example, passages that speak of a new exodus. Okay, so listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. So it's, there's a future exodus, a new exodus, a greater exodus coming for Israel. And there's also going to be a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, we read, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. God is promising hope beyond judgment. He is promising a new covenant, a new covenant that won't fail because rather than the law being an external thing that the people fail to obey, it will be an internal reality that they will desire to live out. God is going to change hearts, not just give people a law. So a new exodus, a new covenant... God is promising that there will be a new temple, though the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. God will raise up a new temple. You can read uh, that prophecy in Ezekiel chapters uh, 40 to 48. Don't have time to go there this morning. Uh, but But related to that, God also promises a new king. In Isaiah, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. A new exodus beyond the judgment, a new covenant beyond the judgment, a new temple, a new king, even a new Jerusalem, a new Israel, a new nation. In fact, God promises that beyond the judgment, there will be a new creation, a whole new creation. In Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah, in chapter 65, we read, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I'll create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. In uh, Amos, great blessing is promised in this new world when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And in Isaiah, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. God is promising everything will be made new. How? Well, this is where the prophets actually introduce a new figure. One who isn't a new version of something they've already encountered before, but a a new figure altogether. And we meet him in Isaiah... And he's just called the servant, my servant. 
And it's through him and his ministry that all these blessings will flow, even after judgment. So in Isaiah, we read of this servant who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, God is going to restore Israel through the ministry of this servant, and yet not just Israel. Not just Israel. Listen again to Isaiah. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And so we wait. We wait for this servant. We wait for the one who can do what no one else can do. We wait for the one who can change hearts. We wait for the one who can bring blessing. We wait for the one who can see that blessing flow to the whole world. But when is it going to happen? At least from the perspective of the prophets. Lots of big promises made. When would it happen? Well, I don't know if you heard it as we were going through all those prophecies, but this refrain keeps coming up. The days are coming. The days are coming, and at the end of our reading from Hosea, they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So that's what the prophets were waiting for. Well, that's what the prophets were telling Israel to wait for, the last days. God is going to do something new in the last days. And next week, next week, we're actually going to see those last days begin to arrive in the form of the servant himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please hit us hard by the imagery that we read about in Hosea. It's easy to hear words and not really feel them, not really feel their weight. It's easy to hear words feel their weight and not carry that weight ourselves. To think that it's only those in the time of Hosea that were guilty of spiritual adultery. But Father, if we just stop and think, if we think about your call to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, then we can't pretend We can't pretend that we do that. The truth is, we go for days without giving you a second thought. We forget that we belong to you, that you have called us to be your own in an exclusive covenant relationship. And instead, we live in a world that chases after all sorts of other things and we follow along. Father, we are guilty of unfaithfulness to you. It hurts to say it, but we know it's true. Father, we thank you that there is still hope, that our unfaithfulness to you 
doesn't make you unfaithful to us. That you are committed. That you will never break your covenant. And that we understand that your commitment is expressed most fully in the gift of your son. That he is the bride price that you pay to win us back. Father, please win us back, not just in fact, but in our hearts. Help us to understand your great love for us so that we will not even want to go astray from you anymore. We pray that this old word of the prophets would be new and fresh and powerful to us today. We pray that you'll help us now and in weeks to come to see how fully and completely you fulfill all your prophet, uh, all the expectations and promises through the prophets in your son, Jesus Christ, that we might know you through him and love him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.